Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're shining a light into dark places. Our guest is Emma Stonex, and as you'll hear, she's written one of my very favourite books for quite a while. It's called The Lamplighters, and it came out to acclaim last year. Now, to mark its paperback release, Emma joins me to talk about the sea and strange vanishings from lonely, haunted places, and the inexhaustible metaphor of the lighthouse. We talk craft and character and how real life and memory interlock with imagination to create stories. Her book is based on a very real, very creepy mystery, but I'll let her explain that in due course. I guarantee it will send you all scurrying to Wikipedia, and I'll be following up with a patron all about more mysterious vanishings that inspire fiction in the next few days. And on that note, for a change, I'm going to briefly mention the Patreon here and now for those who may not listen all the way through my afterword. How dare you? (laughs) If you want more content, including bonus chat with the authors and deep dives into some of the topics that get raised, you can sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and support me in making this show happen. And thanks a ton to everyone who does because it helps massively. But enough of that for now. On with the show, and come with me to a spit of rock out beyond the haze and the horizon. There's a light there that needs tending, lest the dark be allowed to rush in. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Emma, and welcome to Talking Scared. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's always a novelty, actually, to hear a British voice on the other side of this conversation. I'm always speaking to Americans. And the problem is, with that, that my fellow countrymen's accents only serve to highlight how deeply and profoundly Northern I am. (laughs) Well, this is appropriate then, because the lamplight is inspired by a story up north. So there's a connection then. Well... I'm up north. Whereabouts are you on this randomly sunny day in March? I am down south, just south of Bristol. So sort of on the doorstep to the West Country and it's beautiful and sunny. And I almost believe that winter is ending and warmth is coming. And I think we could all do with a bit of that. Just a little bit. It, it is a bit ironic, though, that we, we are speaking on a day like this because your book, The Lamplighters, It's all about the cold and the dark, isn't it? Mm. It is. It is about the cold and the dark. That through that, the obviously the lighthouse is 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 illuminating that dark space. So it is a game of two halves, I guess. This novel it is about light and dark, and in that way, lighthouses are just a complete gift for authors because they are so symbolically rich, um, and it's wonderful to play with those different shades in the writing. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful metaphor for writing um, in many ways. That's one of the things I mm. tweeted about this morning. Um, it came out last year initially. It's being re- reissued in paperback this week in the UK, and it's already out in the US. Um, it's a tale, as you say, of lighthouses, but also of marriages and long dark nights of the soul. And it may also be a little bit about ghosts, but we can we can get to that as we go along. That's my tease for the listeners, but there's a lot more to say. Can you start us off with an introduction to your story? 
Yes, The Lamplighters is a novel about the disappearance of three lighthouse keepers from a remote lighthouse called the Maiden Rock, which is a fictional tower off the south coast of England. And incredibly, these three men leave no trace of themselves and a relief boat is sent out to the tower at the beginning of the novel and it finds a series of baffling clues. It finds an empty tower, an entrance door locked from the inside, two stopped clocks and a table laid for a meal not eaten. So we are immediately gripped and fascinated by this seemingly impossible locked room mystery. And in the novel, we trace the the men's final weeks together on the tower, but we also meet the women that they left behind 20 years later when a writer arrives to interview them. And we gradually start to piece together what might have happened on that fateful day. I only finished the book this morning. Um, And as you saw, I posted on Twitter just how much I enjoyed it and how much it moved me. But I was already desperate to get you on the show kind of regardless because The Lamplighters is not only a great story in its own right, it's also inspired by one of the most fascinating, enduring mysteries in in British Mm. maritime history, the Flannan Isle disappearances, which I'm sure a lot of people, knowing my listenership, will already recognise from your intro. We should probably address that right at the start, because it's, it's kind of a framework and a background. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, the Flannan Isle and how it relates to your story? Yeah, I first came across the Flannan Isle's vanishing years ago, probably about 11 years ago, um, in a publication called The Fortean Times, which I'm sure <laughs> you know well. Yeah, I've been to a Fortean Times convention uh, really, I love the Fourteen Times. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the Fourteen Times convention was as full of the people you'd expect to be at a Fourteen Times convention as you can imagine. Yeah, that's wonderful because I would be disappointed at anything less. Yeah. Um, I, I, just, I think it's a brilliant magazine. Um, it's for listeners. I'm sure your listeners all know, but for anyone who doesn't, it's a fortnightly magazine covering all the weird and wonderful occurrences from across the world it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek but it's genuinely compelling and occasionally they do these big spreads on real life mysteries and this was where I read about the family Isles vanishing so the story goes that in December 1900 on the in the Flannan Isles in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland um, three keepers did incredibly vanish from a remote lighthouse um, And these keepers, as in the lamplighters, left behind some very strange clues. Um, And to this day, their their bodies have never been found and nobody knows for sure what happened to them. And in the intervening years, there have been all sorts of theories um, about what might have what might have happened to them, Um, including quite supernatural ones. Visitors to the island say they've seen lights in the sky and spookily that they've seen three large birds circling the lighthouse lantern. And all these things, when I read about this, just set my imagination going. And I'd wanted to write about the sea for a while anyway, and so it was as though everything clicked into place, and I just felt this sense of longing for the lighthouse and for this occupation that's, um, that is now extinct, and I couldn't resist reimagining it in a book. 
I didn't know about the birds. I thought that, because I know a lot about this story. I, I, I'm obsessed by, I mean, I've been to a 14 times convention, so, you know, it kind yeah. of goes without saying. Um, and I, I love anything strange. And, and I've read a lot about this, but I thought the birds were an invention of your own. So that adds a whole new layer to things. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a, a, a recurring bird in the Lamplighters that is my own, but that motif was definitely inspired by the idea of, of these these three ghostly birds that have been seen. And, you know, I, Jenny says in the novel, um, you're either a what-if person or you're not, and I'm definitely a what-if person. So I will look into things like those three birds and I'll join dots that probably aren't there. But it I, I love imagining, you know, what if, what if there's a, another connection there? And actually on the cover of the Lamplighters, um, there are three birds circling the tower there. So there's a lovely mirroring with the real event. Um, yeah, I, I love sort of borrowing those elements from the real mystery and reworking them and sort of sewing them into my imagined version of it. I think that kind of gives it an extra flavour. So you've hinted there at why this story grabbed you. Um, but I was reading other interviews with you and I, I didn't know that this is far from your first novel. You, you've published mm. several under pseudonyms. Um, and I think you described them at one point as in the heritage of the 80s bonk busters. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, sort of Barbara Cartland and all that kind of thing, and um, <laughs> I I wonder basically what what made the Flannan Isle mystery that whole architecture of this story what what made you go right that's my story right there and not only that it's going to be the one that I send out in my name. Well, I'd actually wanted to write this story before I wrote any of the other ones. Um... But I, I, I couldn't. I, you know, I was at that time um, in my early twenties. I didn't really um, know what I was doing. I, I wanted to tell this story, and I sat down to, to try and conceive of it. And I just didn't have the skill at that point, and I didn't know enough about lighthouses. I, 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 I loved the story, the Flannel story, and I loved the idea of it, but I didn't know enough about the occupation and it felt really important to me to try and present an as authentic a view of lighthouse keeping as I could rather than the slightly romanticized nostalgic version that a lot of us have and certainly I used to before I, I read about how grueling it was for the men and their families um, so it just wasn't right for me to start it at that point in my life but I did mention it to my agent when I first met her and I said I've got this idea for a lighthouse that I'm desperate to tell but I, I want to keep my real name for it because I don't feel ready to write it now so that's why I chose pseudonyms for my other novels and I mean I guess I cut my teeth on those novels really I learned so much about story construction and characters and um yeah it, it but but this lighthouse was constantly shining in the back of my mind and when the time came that I was ready to do it I felt really glad that I'd taken that that time and learned as much as I had. Reading this book and, and reading your interviews I, I found quite personally inspiring. I know this is devolving into a loving really early on and I, I, I've been accused of <laughs> I've been accused of pandering a little bit before but sod it you know um, I found it inspiring because I think you're the same age as me because you were born in 83, is that yes. right? 
Um, and as everyone on this show who was listening for a while knows, I set this show up because I was trying to write a novel and I wanted something that would give me one insight into the whole like writer's life and something that, w- that would give me like weekly <laughs> sort of goals I could hit you know I thought mm-hmm. just sitting there writing a novel in a lot it's gonna drive me mad but sadly the podcast has kind of subsumed the writing massively uh, but I'm getting back to it and the story I was writing that became aborted and I've picked up again is all around sort of quarrying in the 19th century because I live wow. near a lot of quarries and at first, one of the main stumbling blocks was just the sheer weight of research and historical mm. detail. And as you said, the the authenticity. And I wonder, mm. a lot of people, you know, must come up against that hurdle. It's easy to, to say how you research. I mean, I, I know the, the list of books that you mentioned in the afterword to, the, to the, the lamplighters. But at what point had you consumed enough to think, OK, I can now write authentically about this subject um well well the research for the lamplighters for me was um was quite unusual in a way I don't think I'll ever have that research experience again because I was actually reading about lamplight about the lighthouses um for about 10 years on and off while I was writing my other books so I wasn't doing research with a capital R I wasn't saying I'm going to dedicate X number of months to my research and then I'll start. I was just kind of lazily reading the books that took my attention. Um, I I found as many books as I could about lighthouses, about their construction, about the people who worked in them, a lot of first person accounts and biographies, a lot of interviews with lighthouse keepers. So it was a really organic process and it was a very unhurried process as well, which meant I think that it all soaked in in a far more natural way because I'm sure you'll know from your your research as well into your subject that it's quite hard sometimes to know how to handle research and if it feels that you've sort of quickly absorbed as much as you can the temptation then is to lump all of this information into your written work when actually that's just not enjoyable for the reader or helpful for the story but because I read so slowly and gently about these lighthouses it just felt when the time came that I knew I knew it from the inside out I knew these voices I felt a really strong connection with these characters and with that way of life so when I did sit down to write the story it was the story that came first and the research was just gently supporting it which is how research should operate um Whereas the book I'm researching at the moment, I'm doing in a slightly different way. So I'm having to be really strict with myself about what to put in when. And that can be a little bit awkward. But it was a real joy, actually, researching this because I'm so passionate about the subject. I'm so passionate about the sea and about lighthouses and about these men um, that it was it was a pleasure. So do you reckon you know enough now that if you had to gun to head, you could operate a lighthouse? No, probably not. Well, actually, I could now because they're all electric. So probably just p- pressing a button now. I can manage that. Um, but when the characters and the lamplighters were, were operating it, it was, you know, it was a skill. And mm. I mean, Bill would say in, in the novel that it's not and that a monkey could do it, but it was a skill. And, you know, you light the mantle, you'd light the burner and you'd watch the flame go. And uh, before that, actually, before um, that technique, they used to wind weights. 
up and down the lighthouse and that would be what turned the lenses that rotated the flame to magnify the beam across the sea. So every 45 minutes one of the keepers whoever was on duty would have to manually wind these weights. I'm not sure how good I would be at doing that but I give it a go and I think in a way I'd enjoy the lighthouse keeper's life. I think I would find a lot to occupy my mind and yeah I could imagine sitting in the lantern and just being with the sea would be quite nice. I think I'd love it. I actually, this is a really weird anecdote. I applied to work on a lighthouse in the Did Arctic you? Circle. Yeah, it never happened because I got married. Um, but I, I, I spent a year kind of bumming around North America doing this kind of work away thing where you just work for board and lodgings. And when I came back, I had like no prospects. I was living on a, on a friend's couch and stuff. And then I, I mm. there was a, a, an opportunity on the same kind of site where you could go to Norway and you had to be helicoptered in and then you manned this lighthouse with four other volunteers. Oh my goodness. You had to commit to like three months and it was in the Arctic. So it was dark. It was the Arctic Circle. And I thought it sounded amazing. Um, I mean, I would have gone full Jack Torrance without a doubt, you know, there would have yeah. been like red rum all <laughs> over the place. Um, I wonder if they, if they, if they would do any psychological assessments before choosing the final group because, well you'd hope so you know we joke about it but but that could that could happen people might go yeah. a little bit crazy yeah you'd, you'd hope so I mean I wouldn't allow me to go put it that way um, how long was the spell for it was three months right that's a long time yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah I think it's more it was like oh it's an adventure so you can enjoy it rather than it being work so but yeah no it would have been fun but then I, I met my my now wife and um and, and she ruined it yeah well I shouldn't think it was a very appealing prospect for her <laughs> no no not so much anyway back to your lighthouse so I, I want to talk a bit more about the Flannan stuff because it's fascinating mm-hmm. but this is your own story it's yeah. closely adjacent but there are different characters a different lighthouse a different time simple question I suppose but if you were so fascinated by this story why not go for a straight historical retelling I do consider it, but I quickly decided I didn't want to do that. And there were several reasons for that, really. The main one is that I it felt a little bit insensitive. Um, these men who vanished from the Flannan Isles have never been found and their families have lived with uncertainty. And even though we're several generations on now, they still live with uncertainty. And so for me, who has no connection with that event to sort of wade in and impose characters on these people that won't be right because I didn't know them um, seemed seemed wrong and bullish. Um, and also I knew I wanted to provide a resolution at the end, even though that resolution is remains open, hopefully for readers to disagree with me. That's the whole point of the mystery. But I did want to offer up a resolution. And so again, to do that, knowing that these men had families and acquaintances who may well disagree with me, didn't feel quite comfortable. Um, And also, I didn't think I could get the Scottish vernacular of the early 20th century (laughs) quite right. So I thought I'll steer away from Scotland and all of the stereotyping that I no doubt would have put into my writing because I don't live in Scotland um and and go and go for a different time and place and 
I mean, for me, the, the, the lighthouses in the West Country, particularly the tower lights, the ones that are out in the middle of the sea, I just think they're fantastic in the West Country. Off the coast of Land's End, there is the Wolf Rock, which is my favourite lighthouse and the lighthouse on which the Maiden Rock in the novel is based. Um, and it's eight miles southwest of Land's End. And you stand at Land's End and you look out to the distance and you can just about see it, this little matchstick. And it's so eerie and haunting. And I love the look of it. And so I really wanted to kind of go down to the West Country for that. I just Googled that, the Wolf Rock. And yeah, that is a desolate place to be. Yeah. And actually, in the days when these lighthouses were manned, the Wolf Rock was notorious for keepers asking to be moved from it and and relocated to another lighthouse because it was apparently very... I mean, it's obviously it's hugely remote, but it also had a feeling in it. It had a sort of hostility mm-hmm. in it that keepers talked about a bad atmosphere. They they just they didn't like being there. Um, and again, you think, why? Like, that's so fascinating. And the reason it's called the Wolf Rock is because of the howling sound that the wind makes as it swoops through the rocks, which, again, I think is a lovely detail. That is cool. And it? yeah, mm. to, to somebody like me, that is just catnip. Yes, it is, yeah. it's catnip to me as well because it sets your imagination going. And yeah, I, and I think in a way these lighthouses, these towers anyway, the ones in the sea are even more haunting now because they're empty. So you look out at all this granite in the middle of the water and nobody's living there, but people once did. And mm. yeah, it's it's chilling. Well, that that is an interesting point. Uh, I'm going to basically posit my theory now to you let's see if i'm right or if i'm way off mark but your story takes place over two timelines 1972 and 1992 so the disappearances in the 70s and then the aftermath and the reckoning of sorts is in 92 um Mm. i was wondering why you chose that bracket of time and then i thought right the flannan lighthouse went fully automated in 1971 which is the year before your story begins. And it feels like that impending automation is another tension in the book. These, yeah. these, these men are terrified of it. And it almost feels by like by setting your story in 72, that you are quite literally extending the legacy of the Flannan Isle keepers. Is there anything in that? Or have I been too smart ass for my own good? I wish I could sit here and stroke my chin cleverly and say that's what I intended (laughs) but it's not um but I love it I love it nonetheless and I might actually steal that in the future but um no I actually I I I set it in 72 just purely because most of the lighthouse keepers accounts that I'd read were in the 60s and 70s and that was the period I felt most comfortable with and also because it was the decade preceding automation for most of the lighthouses in the UK. I think the last one to go electric was in 98, I think. Um, but I, I, no, I didn't click, I didn't click about 1971 in the Flannan Isles. I actually thought the Flannan Isles went electric later. So I think it's a wonderful theory and I'm delighted that you came up with it, but I'm very sorry I wasn't clever enough to myself. <laughs> That, that, that's fine let's just let's just <laughs> pretend that's the case um 
So speaking of theories then, I've got to ask you, I'm sure you've been asked a million times, I'm sure you're bored to tears a bit, but do you have a theory as to what happened to those men on the Flannan Isle? On Is it Eileen Moore is the island in question? Yes, yes. Um, do you have a theory? Do you have any more t- any time for the more speculative theories, shall we say? Um, oh, definitely, yes. Um, I think if I had to put my money on something I, I sadly I, I I would say it was a more prosaic explanation and I would say that a freak wave probably came up and took the men um and there would have been some strange circumstances around that because the golden rule of lighthouse keeping is that you never leave the lighthouse unattended so the idea that one person might have left the, the Flannanar's lighthouse got into trouble another man could have come to help him but two two of them shouldn't have because the lighthouse should never have been left so that's a strange thing that shouldn't have happened but you can imagine in in the moment you know panic a heavy sea it might have happened um the sea actually was calm at the time of this disappearance but as I touch on in the novel the sea can do unpredictable things and there are these freak waves that just suddenly come up meters and then drop again. And there are other stories of keepers vanishing from towers when they've been sitting in the entrance door fishing. A wave could come and take somebody and they're never seen again. And that did happen um, in one of the autobiographies that I read. Um, This happened to somebody on a sea tower. Um, So the sea can do really strange things. And I think that is possibly what happened. But I am drawn by as I said before by the what if and I I, I don't know I mean for me I don't want to give any spoilers for the novel so I'm trying Mm -hmm. to be careful Um, but the psychology of the keepers does really interest me and that's a big driver in the book and in the story is the effects that isolation can have and cabin fever and being in a lighthouse in the middle of the sea with two other people what that can do to somebody so that's something that I wanted to explore as well and who knows in 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 the real event that could have played a part I mean for a start as a as a basic assumption aliens um, but once you get past that (laughs) uh, I think the fact that this is in the real vanishing this really chilling comment about how it had been remarked on that the youngest of the of the the keepers had been seen crying and that's probably quite a normal mm. thing, you know. Someone's off on his own; it's probably missing someone back home and stuff. It's probably not the strangest thing that he was crying, but mm. it's just in the in the the context of what came later, it, it takes on a real chill. You know, there, there was something amiss in the psychology of these of these men at the time. Absolutely, and I mean, you've you've got this detail as well that's sort of been attached to the case about the principal keeper's weather log describing a storm. Yes, that never actually happened elsewhere. How localised could it have been? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you think about, you know, storms mm-hmm. of the soul, storms of the mind. Was it an actual storm or are we talking about something else? Yeah. Um, and this was from the principal keeper who was the keeper in charge of the lighthouse. So, yes, I mean, I, I completely agree with you if you've got one of the keepers crying and as you say that probably would have been something perfectly normal and explainable and yet 
dot 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 it makes you wonder it makes you think about what else might have been going on between those three men um but i mean over the years uh, th there's been so many theories posited about this and it's funny in the way of real life mysteries some of these theories get sort of absorbed into the law that surrounds it so there's a very famous poem called flannanile by wilfred gibson about this real life event and in it he introduces the idea of a table being laid for a meal and a chair being overturned as though somebody had pushed away from the table and stood up quickly in actual fact that that wasn't a detail in the real vanishing but it's become part of it now and sort of part of this family of details and so I've borrowed those in the lamplighters as well because I think they really add to it um and this sense of it being almost like a fairy tale you know like the idea of, of an empty table and stopped clocks and people missing, it appeals to this almost childlike fear in us, yeah. I think. Yeah, and there's a fantastic line in the book, actually. This this could stand for so much, I think, within the horror world. There's, there's a line where someone says that there are two kinds of people. The ones who hear, hear a creak in the dark, lonely house and shut the windows because it must have been the wind. And the ones who hear a creak in a dark, lonely house light a candle and go and take a look. Now, that speaks to me deeply because I never think it's the wind. Yeah. <laughs> Which are you? Oh, I'm the same as you. I'm I'm the, yeah, I think it's something else. And But, but when I go and take a look, I probably lie in bed and freak myself out and not go and take a look but I would be convinced it was something beyond the wind so I sort of in the middle I guess in that way um I would suspect something else but would I be brave enough to go and investigate <laughs> if I was on my own I don't know would you well no I probably wouldn't know did I just basically say to my wife I heard a noise downstairs <laughs> and and she's she's far more <laughs> kind of sensibly minded than me she'd go down and just sort out the creaking window or something <laughs> But it's what it's it's want it's wanting to know it's 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 being prepared to follow uh -huh. the breadcrumbs yeah. into the wood, isn't it? And I think that's that's where my interest is. That's obviously comes through in the book because the lamplighters has a really interesting relationship with the supernatural, and there's there's a lot of my listeners now who've listened to us talk about about lighthouses for 30 minutes and they go and finally the horror podcast right but so yeah the supernatural plays <laughs> a strange role in this story because it's a bit of a double rug pull because early in the book when the wives are being interviewed by this this person in in, in the future in the aftermath there's a real emphasis on dismissing the supernatural and, and these fringe theories they acknowledge them but kind of dismiss them and, and and then you kind of do that and you expect this, I expected a kind of relatively prosaic resolution. And I'm not saying what the resolution is either way, but the weird and the uncanny definitely starts to creep back in as the book goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, and that was a really important um, feature for me and a very intentional move, largely because reading about the Fanonile's vanishing and learning about these supernatural theories that had entered into it felt like a, a very important part of it and 
this is a mystery that has survived in people's minds and hearts for over 120 years. Um, people are still fascinated by it. It still gives people a feeling of unease. And I think a big part of that is this sense, this possibility that something could have gone on that we don't understand and that doesn't belong in this world. If we were to know the answer, um, it would all, the bubble would burst. But while there is this uncertainty and the question mark remains, it is endlessly fascinating as an event. And it felt really important to me to bring that in to the novel quite firmly and for readers to close the book with, with the feeling that the mystery gives me, that the real mystery gives me, which is I still don't quite know. I don't 100% know, like to have that mystery extend beyond the last page but hopefully at the same time to feel satisfied that you have finished a book and that there has been an answer in inverted commas but that there is still more for you to bring into it if you don't agree and the supernatural allowed me to do that and to play with those notions this episode is supported by novelic the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers not an algorithm Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. I went on a real journey with this book because I wanted an answer. I wanted you to give me an answer to your mystery so that I could at least then extrapolate that to the real mystery. Do you know what I mean? So I, I started mm. the book wanting answers. And then then I was thinking, oh, actually, I don't want it to be too mundane. And then it got a bit wiggy and I was like oh no but I want to know what's going on and and I, and I never quite settled on what I wanted to happen um yeah but I was happy at the end that I didn't completely know because the elements of the strange in this book never seem to coalesce into a single kind of solid narrative it's all hints and illusions and potential misinterpretation mm. and like I say even now I'm, I'm not sure that I know what truly went on in that lighthouse or or perhaps more importantly why um now obviously we don't want to spoil things but it, the silver man for example the strange detail mm. on the fringes of this of this story is it too close to a spoiler to ask you to elaborate a little bit on the silver man no i don't it's not a spoiler at all um he it's funny when when you're writing something and, and you might find this as well with your writing that through life, you come across these little details and stories and they stay with you, sort of tucked away in your unconscious. And then you're writing a book and suddenly you reach for this story, this thing that you remember, and it belongs in the thing that you're writing. And a long time ago, I read about um, an account from somebody who was driving through Milton Keynes of all places. And they claimed to have seen a man cross the road in front of their car and he was dressed all in mustard colours um, 
with big round glasses and a very 70s style suit and a briefcase. And he was so odd looking and so out of place and time that it brought this person up short in their car. And they thought, God, that person looks really, really strange. Who is that? Anyway, they thought no more about it and they drove on. And Milton Keynes is made up of many roundabouts and they were several roundabouts on. They were coming to a slow and the same man crossed the road in front of them. And because he was so singular looking, they knew it was the same person. But there was no way that he could have got there. So it's this idea of doppelgangers or ghosts or something uncanny on the periphery of your understanding. That I, I just remembered this story because it was so strong in my mind visually. And um, this person belonged for me in, in this novel as somebody who is neither in this world nor quite the next. And I wanted to bring somebody else onto the Maiden Rock Lighthouse to join my three keepers. But it couldn't be somebody too definite. It had to be someone who raised questions and really um, comes to symbolise the individual fears of the three men, which by that point in the story are starting to manifest themselves in the real world and in what's going to happen. So the silver man is, is a kind of conduit for the plot, um, but he is based on a very uncanny story that I read a long time ago. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, because that appearance on the on the lighthouse, even that isn't definite because that could be something entirely different that is much more explicable. There is another way to read that, isn't there, which we won't go into, but there, there is someone else that that person could be. And yes, I don't think I've ever really read a, a story that I can think of where so many balls are kind of in the air at once and they yeah. could all land in different ways. And I that's why I found so fascinating that normally, if I'm honest, normally a tale like this or an approach would piss me off. I'd yeah. be like, you know, settle on something. What is it you want to tell me here? And in this, I just didn't. I don't know whether it's the strange atmosphere of the lighthouse that makes it work or the weird mm. schism between land and sea. I don't know, but it, it, it just works for the nature of the yeah, story. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and, and I feel the same. I feel like I want commitment from an author. Um, and I think with the lamplighters, because of the real life mystery and because the whole beauty of that and the power of, of the real life mystery is in this uncertainty, that that is a force of its own to be protected when writing about it. Um, the mystery is, is a character and something that should live throughout the whole book and beyond. And that's really important that it should live beyond. So there are a lot of balls in the air. And for me, the challenge was deciding what I believed and knew and what I wanted readers to believe they knew and what the difference was between that, um, which was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do get that. It's a question I ask people a lot that, you know, do you understand what happened, even if you're keeping it? obscured to us do you know what yeah yeah for, for a while I didn't I confess because I did actually write about 19 drafts of this book and probably drafts one to six there was a lot that I didn't know hmm. and I gave it to a trusted friend to read and she said you need to decide on on what you believe happened and as soon as as an author as soon as you do that you really you start to put tax down in the novel and 
understand it a lot better and then you can start playing around with um subverting readers expectations and all of that which is yeah. fun um but yes it, it 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 was a process of many many drafts and yeah and obviously by the time you get to the end of the book you can't necessarily see what others are seeing because you know it so well um so maybe if i if i read the book again in about I'll give it 40 years, give it a long time before I can read it in any way objectively and see what I take from it then. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question and I'm, I'm rephrasing it in my head because I've, I've realised it, it's not the right question to ask. I was going to ask you, is this a ghost story in whatever context you consider that phrase? But I think it inarguably is a ghost story, to be honest, because, you know, even if there's not an actual haunting, these men are all haunted, you know, all that stuff, you know. So I'm going to kind of like roughshod over that and ask you a different question. Is the Maiden Rock a bad place? And I mean bad place with a capital B and a capital P. I'm talking in terms of what Stephen King calls the bad place, you know, Hill House, the Overlook Hotel. Mm places where this kind of haunting presence of some kind and, and human psychology become dangerously linked. D does that make mm. sense? Is this lighthouse a bad place? Well, it's like what we were saying about the, the real life wolf rock and people feeling ill at ease living there. Um, no, it's not a bad place if you think of it as 80 metres of granite and a lantern on the top the materials of it are not bad but what it is is it's a space in which intense emotions and frustrations and terrors and jealousies must have thrived and that makes it a bad place maybe with a lowercase b I mean I'm a great believer in places holding on to energies and um, reflecting back the lives that have lived in them um and i think in that way the maiden rock is yeah it it it's def it definitely has sinister undertones but it's also about the, how the characters relate to it and feel about it so not even the lighthouse keepers but their wives ashore um helen arthur's wife the principal keeper's wife um has a has a detests this lighthouse um for personal reasons that I won't go into because I'll spoil the story. Um, but she feels as though Arthur has left her for the lighthouse, which in some ways he has because he's in love with the lighthouse in a strange way. And it's funny that lighthouses were often referred to in the feminine as a lot mm. of um, boats are as well um, and seers sometimes. And there was this sense of the lighthouses being mistresses for these keepers. They were places to which these keepers could escape their wives and their families and their home lives. So they had this kind of extra power, this female power of temptation and sirens and mermaids. And, you know, you can go down that road as well. Um, and Jenny in the novel hates the lighthouse just because it, it takes Bill away from her. And she hates it for that. And she's jealous of it. So there's all these feelings, both from the lighthouse and from the people ashore that give it that extra tension and menace. Yeah, and, and I find that interesting that it's such a feminine space or, or, or a gendered space because it's such a phallic object, you know? Yeah. You want to get Freud in it, it's, it's a, a, a huge 
quite literal erection on the on the on the the horizon um yeah that that contains men you know um yeah. so and, and and i mean that ties into what i personally think may have gone on on the flannan isle i i've always wondered whether there was some kind of um either homosexual incident um mm. either you know like homosexual kind of menage a trois going on that that drove people to violence or whether the, the the youngest life uh, the youngest keeper who was crying had, had been in some way assaulted and 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 violence stemmed from that i've always wondered if if that was the root of it um mm. but that's again putting it all on the men and this book isn't just or even mostly about the men i mean the mm. story i would say is actually resolutely about the aftermath of the vanishing and the way that the wives mm. and the partners live on and and you actually address that in a sort of quasi meta way at one point one of the wives says to the writer quote your book like all the others it's about the men isn't it men are interested in men and yet you do something very different and i wonder are you kind of burying a kind of literary thesis in your story there about attention and readership and and where the interest should lie not consciously um I mean initially when I when I started to conceive of the story I had it in my mind that I was going to write quite a short intense novella just about the men on the tower and have it be Mm. this really claustrophobic space with no outside perspective really and I think that could work very well as a separate project but the more I read about lighthouse keeping, the more the women were integral to this and their stories were integral to it. And um, my grandma, actually, she used to, she's dead now. She used to live on the Isle of Wight and her husband, my granddad, who I never met, um, was a merchant seaman. So he wasn't a lighthouse keeper, but he was away for many, many months of the year. And she would be at home raising the children, my mum and her sister, on her own. Um and, and this had been playing around in my mind for a while, too, because it is a novel about relationships. And how strange must it have been to have your husband away for such a long time? And then he would come home and the whole dynamic of your home life would change. And it would be difficult for him as well to kind of find a way back into the hierarchy of the marriage and the structure of the marriage. Um and in those days, it was unusual for women to be in charge of their own households. So in some ways, these lighthouse keepers' wives were very ahead of their time. Um, but the lighthouse itself is a place of toxic masculinity in some ways. And that's a phrase that's come into, into being over the last few years. And I think in a way that was with me as well, um, the feeling the need to explore that, but also to offset it. By these feminine perspectives um, that shine a light on different aspects of the marriage and, and and how men and women cope together or indeed apart. Well, all the characters have got distinct voices. And that's one of the things I like about this book. You have these six individuals, six very different voices. Um, but there is also a general shift between land and sea so the women at home have a very practical clipped almost gritty outlook that is reflected in the prose whereas the male povs are written with much more lyricism 
And that that kind of inverts what you'd expect from supposedly gendered prose. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And and I wonder yeah. whether that was an intentional schism, this idea of like two entirely different prose styles and two different perspectives depending on the land and the sea. Yeah, it was. Um, I think one of the reasons that the women are more clipped is because obviously they've lived with a tragedy and lived with uncertainty for 20 years and they're sceptical of this person coming and asking them questions again. And for you know, for Helen, she doesn't want to think about it again, particularly. Mm. And so uh, there needs to be an element of hostility against this writer coming in and, and digging up the past. Um, and in prose, that, that manifests itself as, you know, this short sentence is quite matter of fact. Um, but I also think there's something really true in what you said about the land and sea, because the sea is that fluid, romantic, space a space of possibility and poetry and the the psychological effects of just being with the sea all day for eight weeks at a stretch and there are three types of lighthouses for, for people who don't know there are land lighthouses so the ones on on the mainland but on the coast and there are island lighthouses or rock lighthouses um, and those are the ones for instance the flannan isles um which are on some land, so you can leave the lighthouse, um, but you are on an island, so you, you're separated from the mainland. Or there are the sea towers, which are my favourites, and the Maiden Rock is a sea tower. And on a sea tower, you can't get off. You are stuck there in a room 12 feet long, 12 feet wide, I should say, um, and all, all the exercise you can have is going up and down the stairs and walking around the gallery. So you are really contained, and all there is for miles and miles and miles and miles is sea. And I think if you were looking at the sea all day and the moods of the sea and the weather and nature, that your the way you think about things and express things would change. Um, and that's really the flavour that I wanted to get across was that sort of liminal space that lighthouses occupy between the sea and the sky mm. um and between sort of solid matter and, and and something that we can't quite touch and that felt like a good way of 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 holding on to that by having the prose loosen up a little bit on the tower yeah it's i mean unavoidably as well there is also the practical thing that that the women left at home kind of need to be a bit more practical and clip because they're literally dealing with everything but the, the men have got time to sit there and wax lyrical about yeah. the, uh, the the cast of light on on the waves at dawn and stuff <laughs> you know let's let yeah. we shouldn't perhaps get too forgiving of the poetical tendencies <laughs> yeah no indeed and and I think for a lot of women it, it, it did feel like that you know their their men would come home and and I think for some keepers it was difficult to come back ashore and to negotiate the land life because the life on the tower was so um, simple in comparison um, and so small and so quiet and nowadays we'd say it was mindful but of course in mm. those days they didn't but it was that kind of thing and then to come back to real life would be very disorientating and strange um, and yeah I mean the other thing that must have been irritating for the wives was that when these men were on on the towers, they were meticulous in domestic matters. They had to be. One of the main jobs on the lighthouse was to keep it spick and span. And it was always immaculately kept in case of 
inspectors dropping in without warning. Um, but no doubt when these men got home, they probably just <laughs> sat on the sofa and expected to be waited on hand and foot and didn't lift a finger. So it must have been a really difficult thing to negotiate for both of them, but especially for the women. And, and that's why I think this book does such a good job of keeping our kind of attitudes towards everyone in flux throughout, because you do fall into the trap of of seeing these perhaps not the trap, perhaps not the trap, but that's perhaps unfair. But you you fall into the, the the habit of seeing these men as these heroic, solitary figures, and then seeing the wives, certainly Jenny at the start, as as quite painful. You know, she's quite a pitiful character. Kind of reminded mm. me of of how Stephen King wrote about Carrie. You know, as as somebody who, yeah. because she's so pitiful, you almost can't get behind her. You know, but then as the book yeah. goes on. I found myself having so much sympathy for, for Jenny and then losing it for other people, then getting it back. And this this gradual unveiling of who these people are in all their warts and all, it, yeah. it, it's, it does show every side of the of the equation and the relationships. And well, well here's, here's a question. Did you have a favourite character to write about or from the perspective of? Oh, um. I think well, Arthur is my favourite character. I feel most mm. like him in sensibilities. I mean, I do sort of feel like maybe in a past life I was a lighthouse keeper. I just feel such a, a connection with it and um, a love for it. So I feel most like Arthur. Um, but that said, I think that the most enjoyable to write in a way was Jenny. I found her enjoyable to write because I really understood where she was coming from and the turns that her life had taken and how easy it would be living with terrible uncertainty long term, how easy it would be to let that get the better of you. And actually, that's the main difference between Jenny and Helen, I suppose, because Helen has decided in her mind, at least, on what happened. And then she can settle on that version of events and move ahead in her life because of that. Whereas for Jenny, she's breathed life into the uncertainty and she needs that uncertainty because without it, there's no chance of Bill ever coming back. Mm. But adopting that uncertainty and almost nurturing it, it's become this terrible, this terrible creeper inside her. And I, I really felt very sorry for her. Um, and I could understand where she was coming from. So in, in, I mean, enjoyable to write isn't quite the right word, but she came very easily and I felt I knew her. Yeah. And and I suppose in the end, the, the the bravest step is by Jenny. It's her who has the the the, the closest thing to redemption. Yeah, I will. I am glad though in closing that that you said Arthur because I, I, some of his Arthur's passages, particularly, particularly the later passages, they 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 nearly brought me to tears. I, I think it's some of the, the the best writing on grief I've read in a long time. There's this sort of tidal melancholia pulling beneath it all um but there is one passage that i found just so uplifting and i want to quote it in full if you don't mind because i think people will like to hear this so arthur writes a letter home and in it he says how quote the keepers will be able to see your lights just as you can see theirs you said it was funny to think that your light could be seen miles away Well, that was the thing about light. You don't need a lot of it. The other way around, 
A sliver of dark in a sooty garden, you'd never spot it. The light's stronger and quicker, and the eye goes looking for it. And if you think of the world like that, it doesn't seem as bad a place. And that's such a great metaphor. And with the world being what it is right now, that metaphor is exactly what I needed to read this morning. Um, So there's no follow-up question, basically. Just thank you for it, because it's the metaphor that I needed. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think we could all do with, with a bit of that at the moment. And actually... When I when the lamplighters came out, of course, we were all in lockdown as well. And it is funny how this metaphor of light and dark, it resonates through everything, every adversity that we face. It's it's the ultimate message, you know, um, which do we emphasize? Which do we notice? Um, yeah, it, it is an awful lot to think about. But I think in that way, lighthouses, which are ultimately their beam is 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 so small compared with the vast unknown and the vast darkness and yet so penetrating and so important and carrying such a message of hope and connection and you know the humanity really and I think um that's what makes them so special Mm. I always say horror is about standing against the dark uh that's Mm. my my governing thesis for all of this so I I think this book more than most provides a metaphor for that um Let's finish off in the typical way, kind of take a breath because that all got a bit profound. Um, <laughs> can, can you recommend a book for my, my listeners that you think they should read and tell us why? Yeah, I'm sure many of your, your listeners have already read this, but um, the, best, um, I, well, the best horror book, but I think, I think that doesn't necessarily do it justice because it's very complicated it's the last house on needless street by catriona ward and it's the book that really frightened me um i read it last year and a book hasn't frightened me that way in a long time it's a wonderful story um that really creeps under your skin and plays with this very important idea in horror for me that it isn't what's on the page it's what's left out and what she does so well, Catriona Ward, is she gives us this space to bring our own private horrors into play, um, which is incredibly powerful. And she's just sort of holding our fingertips down this very dark alley, guiding us through, but letting us experience the fear. And I recommend that book to everybody, whether they enjoy horror or not, because I think there are many, many layers to it. Uh, it's brilliant. The Last House on Needless Street. Yeah, Kat came on the show to talk about it. Um, and Christ, that was a, a tightrope for spoilers. Yeah, oh, I bet it was. <laughs> Almost impossible to talk about, I would think. Yeah, we, we just about managed it, I think. Um, but yeah, no, people love that book. I, I I, was telling someone last night that I guessed the twist and, and they frankly didn't believe me. Um, no, I didn't guess it at all because I just kept kept being so buffeted from one side to another, I think I knew, and then it would change again, which rarely happens. Um, very clever. I only guessed it because I saw the the, the, the list of um, cited books, and that kind of gave me a slight hint as where it was going, which is a bit of a shame, really, because it, it stole some of the mystery from me. But, yeah, it's, it's mm. a fantastic book, no, no, no doubt. Last question. What truly scares you, Emma? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this question because it's a huge question. And the short answer is 
is a lot. <laughs> it's thinking about all the things that scare me. I think I'm quite a frightened person. Um, I mean, there are two answers. The first is in the real world. I've got two young children. So, you know, my, my greatest fear, honestly, is anything happening to them. In a more abstract way, for me, it's the familiar becoming unfamiliar. And we touched on The Shining earlier because um, I started thinking, what films really scare me? And that's one that really scares me. And it's really a, this idea of somebody who you think you know becoming somebody who you don't know. And it's not just people, but the landscape as well. So the Blair Witch Project scares me for that reason, that nature can suddenly turn against us, that things we think we know and understand can suddenly become unknowable. Um, and I wonder if you know what I mean. Um, I know just what you mean. Yeah. Freud called, called it the uncanny, the unheimlich, the uncanny. It's, 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 it's often seen as the absolute bedrock of... of um, of gothic fiction because it yeah. you, you take the weird translation the etymology the unheimlich actually means the unhomely not the uncanny yeah. it means the unhomely and it's about something yeah. that is as as familiar as the home suddenly being rendered other and it, yeah, yeah it's the bedrock of all haunted houses it's do you know what i mean so i i totally get that and i, I mean christ yeah. that we're living in in times like that the world as a entire ecosystem has become yeah weirdly recognizable uh, at the same time as it's what it ever was i mean you know we've got war in europe and we've had a pandemic for two years i i totally get where you're coming from yeah yeah no that is it and um yes i mean because I, I can happily watch films with lots of blood and gore and for me that isn't horror for me horror is that that uncanny that creeping sense of unfamiliarity um yeah i i yeah it, it's 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 a big a big kind of theme, but it's something as well that I I wanted to touch on a little bit in the lamplighters because it's these glimmers on your peripheral vision. It's those strange little details. And I grew up on a diet of Twin Peaks. Hmm. I watched Twin Peaks way too young, and that's all about those weird little uncanny details and faces and habits. And I think all of that has soaked into me and into my creativity over the years as well um yeah I sort of cross with my parents for letting me watch that so young to be honest ah <laughs> uh, well if, if I think without that we wouldn't have this book in quite the way it is so I, I'm glad for the trauma that you received I often say <laughs> that you, I Neil. often tell authors that I'm really <laughs> glad they had a really frightened childhood because I got to read a good book because of it and that, to be honest for me that's all I care about um <laughs> But yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's anything quite as weird in, in The Lamplighters as The Log Lady, but that you could certainly see the twin Is there anything as weird ever as The Log Lady? No, no. And also, is there anything as frightening ever as Bob crawling over that couch? Nothing. Nothing as frightening. I was convinced for a long time because they, you've got Bob crawling over the couch, but when you first see Bob, he's, he's crouched behind a bed, isn't he, in Laura's bedroom? Yes. And for months, I went into my parents' bedroom. They had a sink. I used to clean my teeth at the sink. And I would actually hold a hand up to the right side of my face because I was convinced that if I turned around, I would see the top of Bob's head and his eye patch. Huh. I was utterly convinced to the point where I do honestly believe that I would have 
made it happen. I would have seen it because I was so convinced he was going to be there. I was only about eight. You know, this is <laughs> not not healthy, not good. <laughs> but the way he moves and, oh, my goodness, terrifying. Yeah. Well, as I say, I am delighted for your upset adolescence if it, if it gave us this book. Um, <laughs> I always say that people can kind of gauge my reaction, my recommendations from the tone of my voice in these interviews. And I think it's quite clear how much I enjoyed The Lamplighters. Now, now that it's available in paperback, I hope everyone who listens buys a copy for themselves. I feel genuinely blessed by the story, Emma. Thanks for writing it and thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much. So a few things. First of all, I've got a sore throat because of an appallingly drunken weekend. 38 is far too old for Red Bull and vodka, it turns out. Secondly, people are literally filming a TV show in my next-door neighbour's back garden, so apologies for any weird sound, vocal or otherwise, in this outro. But onwards. What a beautiful book. What a lovely conversation. Emma was just as articulate and thoughtful as her book suggested that she would be, Quite aside from the immediate joy of making the edit so much easier, it was great to talk to someone who had such a clear vision for their work, even if that clarity actually resulted in a wholly ambiguous story. I can recommend The Lamplighters to many, many people. If you like a ghost story, check. Literary fiction, check. You like poetic prose or nature writing, check. If you like Margaret Atwood, or Patrick McGrath, or Joyce Carol Oates at their most gothic. Yeah, this is for you, and I could go on. It won't be a horror novel to many, but I don't care. It may not even be a ghost story. That's for you to decide. It's brilliant, and it's haunting, and that's enough for me. Eerie, that's the word, it's eerie, in a particularly British way that evokes space and time so effectively. It'll either make you want to move to a lighthouse right away or never, ever set foot offshore. And that's probably another binary schism between those two types of people that Emma and I spoke about. Would you do it? Would you go and live in a lighthouse for months on end in close confines with other people, their ticks and their habits and their little peccadillos, the smell of their feet, the way they suck their teeth? I reckon it's amazing there weren't more murders. Me, though, I'm all for a lighthouse life, as long as I can go alone, or just me, my wife and the dog. Imagine the reading you'd get done. I mean, if they had reliable Wi-Fi and I could continue doing this podcast, I'd probably only come back to shore, like, once every few months. Ted could wear a little sweater and become a lighthouse keeper's dog. He'd he'd look quite the part. Obviously, there'd be sinking ships all over the place, because I can't be trusted. But I'm sure I'd learn. There is one detail in the book that I didn't get a chance to mention in the interview, and I thought I didn't really want to miss the chance to tell you about it. Have any of you seen Robert Eggers' movie, The Lighthouse? I I haven't yet, but I'd assumed it was about the same Flannan Isle case because it's the most famous lighthouse mystery. As it turns out, it's not, but the case that did inspire the movie is mentioned in Emma's book. In 1801... The two keepers on Small's Lighthouse were Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith. 
Griffith died in an accident and Howell was convinced that if he got rid of the body into the sea, he'd be assumed to have murdered the man. Instead then, he built a rough coffin and lashed it and Griffith's body to the outside of the lighthouse. But as time passed and the storms raged, the box began to fall apart and supposedly the corpse's arm came free and it would move in the wind, beckoning the surviving keeper and even, they say, tapping against the outside of the structure. And by the time Hal was relieved, he'd undergone serious emotional damage, as you can probably imagine, and his friends were said to barely even recognise him. And that's why, ever after, the rules were changed so that lighthouses were manned by three keepers. How's that for some proper real-world gothic, right? If you've read The Lamplighters, I'd, I'd love to know what you think. Did you love it as much as I did? What do you think happened to the Flannan Isle Keepers? We'll never actually know, but it's, it's good to speculate. Top three for me. Top three answers. Aliens, dimensional rift, mermaids. It's always mermaids, isn't it? You just you can't trust them. Let me know your thoughts, though. You can reach out on Twitter and Instagram to TalkScaredPod or email directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I've had a whole raft of emails in recent weeks, but I'm just about getting up to speed with replies. So, yeah, it's time for more. You can also join Patreon, as mentioned. Upcoming bonus content includes extra chat with Simone St. James, Mike McGuinness and Gretchen Falcon-Martin, plus a whole episode devoted to real-life mysterious disappearances and the books they inspired. That's co-hosted with Ali Wilkes, back again after we went polar exploring in her novel all the white spaces. You don't want to miss any of it. And lastly, if you can, please rate and review the show. It makes just a huge difference to growing this into something even bigger. I'm back next time with Alan Baxter, master of Australian horror and all-round good bloke. We take a trip back to his spooky coastal town of Gullpepper with his second instalment of novellas set there, and I thoroughly recommend you get to grips with the first collection. That's simply called The Gulp. Until then, though, label your food clearly in the fridge, don't chew with your mouth open, and never, ever let anyone dim your light. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>